Hi, Nancy. Hey, Shane. I was. I wanted to know. Did you ever do? Do you remember the like Mentos and soda thing? No, you have I, no idea. What is the Mentos and soda thing? So basically, the idea is that you put Mentos into people would always do Coke, but some sort of chemical reaction happens that it results in like the soda shooting up in the air and like exploding and people would like do it under pressure and explode bottles and all that type of thing oh i never did that no but um we did do um some you know interesting things in the microwave did you ever do any of those no No. who was we me and a babysitter i had (laughs) which must have made my parents very happy about that like a um a raisin you put a raisin in the microwave. Does it explode? You know, it puffs up real big, you know, like, oh. but yeah, yeah. I think it may have eventually exploded. And I your mean, parents yeah, didn't we like did that other. Very much. No. <laughs> no. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Nancy Bompy. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. I have to say, I'll never look at raisins, I guess, the mm. same way again. Yeah. <laughs> or or maybe I'll just, oh, we should do that in the microwaves here. Oh, that would be really, yeah, they'd love <laughs> us, I'm sure. I'm sure our colleagues would love that. Anyways, okay. So we're talking about all of this and, and I guess blowing things up in pressure. Well, I guess, uh, I don't know. I'm going to ask Liza. So we're going to bring in Liza Lester, who uh, is the producer for this episode. Hi, Liza. Hey, guys. Uh, so so why? Like, Why are we talking about all this today? So we're talking about high pressure today. I talked with a high pressure physicist who is trying to recreate the conditions on the inside of Jupiter hmm. here on Earth using lasers and diamonds. Hmm. My name is Marius Millot, and um, I'm from France originally, and now I work in uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California. And I mostly do experiments using large lasers to study matter at very high pressures and temperatures. Okay, so Jupiter is mostly made of hydrogen, if you remember, the big gas planet. I, I didn't. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know it's not like a rocky planet. Well, I, get, I know it's, okay, we're, we're getting derailed. I know it's a gaseous yeah. planet. Right, so it's mostly gas. And this is one of the questions is, what is it gas all the way down? What's in the middle? That's a good question. Right, and it matters because it matters for like how planets behave and also how the solar system developed, as he's going to talk about some more. And one of the big questions is like, What's in the middle of things like Jupiter and how is it generating this big magnetic field that it has? Like Earth has a magnetic field and so does Jupiter, but some planets don't like Mars and they have different magnetic fields for different reasons. But scientists think that it's because there is molten metal of some kind moving in the inside of the planet. So it's basically turning the planet into a big electric generator. Hmm. So molten as in like liquid. Liquid. So like on Earth, it's molten. It's probably kind of like lava, right? It's really hot rock that has metal content in it. And it's moving around in this, you know, creating this flux. Um, But then maybe a planet like Mars, it's colder. It's cooled down so it doesn't have this molten interior anymore. So then the question is, something like Jupiter, does it have this rocky thing on the inside or is it something different? So it doesn't have like rock or it's gas right does it have rock at all is maybe a question right okay um because it's got to have some way it has to have this like motions of metal moving on the interior because it has a massive magnetosphere okay so one of the things that marius is looking at is what happens to hydrogen when you put it under lots and lots of pressure the kind of pressure it's on under in the center of a big planet like jupiter and what he and his colleagues have found is that it, it does some weird stuff um, one of those things is if you push on it enough, it can turn into a metallic liquid. Hmm. Yeah. Metallic. 
liquid hydrogen. Yeah, so it conducts electricity like a metal. Huh. I had no idea. No idea that could happen. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, like, you know, first you press on it, maybe it becomes a liquid, but it's more like a normal liquid. It's not, it's not conducting. It's not metallic. And if you keep going, they spied, you know, in these brief nanoseconds of these experiments that you could get this liquid that's, like, shiny like a metal. And so that's important for understanding what might be inside Jupiter. Maybe it's just this flowing metal hydrogen. Now I'm pretty interested to hear how they do this, which I guess he will be telling us. He does it with big lasers. (laughs) He gets to play with big lasers, and he's going to tell us about that, too. Over there, we have a big program where we're trying to make nuclear fusion with big lasers, right? So we're trying to basically recreate a star on Earth, right? So to tame nuclear fusion, where you take two hydrogen atoms and you bring them so close together that the nuclei of the hydrogen fuse and make a helium atom. So you take hydrogen and you make helium. And because of the E equal mc square equation, you release energy doing that. And so that's a very big scientific enterprise in which I'm a very, very small bit. And our colleagues do every week, we do experiment where we reach 300 gigabar of pressures, right? So basically conditions uh, just like inside the, the, the stars, right? Now, most of my experiment and the experiment we were talking about, metallic hydrogen or studying the inside of Uranus and Neptune, those are megabar of pressure, millions of atmosphere. For planetary science, uh, it's, it's kind of important because those techniques are the only way that we can recreate the pressure and temperature that exist inside a large planet. Jupiter, the pressure at the core is 80 megabars, 80 millions of atmospheres of pressure. Over the years, uh, we've been trying to study different materials that are relevant for the planets, right? And we, we, we choose the most important ones. So we do hydrogen, we do helium, we do hydrogen, helium, and we do water because, you know, the icy gi- giant planets or the gas giant planets. So laser is a light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. So it's basically a big amplifier of light, right? And so, so we take the energy from the electrical grid, we put it into big capacitor banks, then we charge a flashlight which excite glass, and this glass then amplifies the laser light. And this technology, this laser chamber which fits in your laser pointer that you have. It's, it's about one centimeter. Now for this laser, this takes three football field long. Right? The, the building is three football field long. And it's like 200 lasers, and each of them is the most powerful laser beam in the world. And they all fire at the same time, and they all arrive on the target at the same moment and with beautiful performance. and optical shape and all the things that we, 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 we want. We call it a target. We have this quasi-military jargon, right? We do a shot and on a target. And so you, you have your target and you, you launch your laser energy onto it. And because it's so much energy, the, 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 uh, the atoms and the molecules that form your target absorb this energy and become very, very hot. And because they become hot, they get ionized, it creates a plasma, and this plasma it's very hot, and on one side it has a full density material, and on the other side it's vacuum. And so, of course, it expands where it can expand, and the recall of this plasma firing is what we, we use to compress the material. 
what's exciting is that if you take water and you compress it to high pressure and temperature, just like Uranus and Neptune, you have completely different behaviors that the water that we, we know uh, of everyday life. And the same for hydrogen. Hydrogen, you take it, you compress it, it becomes opaque. If you put it in the fluid and you compress it, it becomes a liquid metal, which is just like you know, liquid mercury, but very, very lightweight, light, more, you know, airy than lithium, right? So it's completely defying your intuition and our intuition, but yet we do the experiment and that's what, what we find and that's what's happening inside those planets. Okay, so I, I have to ask, mm-hmm. why do we care about this? <laughs> <laughs> because Jupiter is cool, Shane. I, I know it's cool, I know. No, but a good question. Um, let's let Marius explain. A lot of people here at AGU are saying that if we want to understand how the planet formed, how it evolved in time and where it's going to go and what's happening with the climate, you know, you you really want to understand the the Earth. If you want to understand the Earth today, you want to understand its history. If you want to, to understand the history, you want to know how the solar system formed. And if you want to know how the solar system formed, you need to study the giant planets. And so if you go, you know, this staircase and, well, you need to know the, the giant planets, how do you model giant planets? Well, you, you look at it, right? You do astronomy, you use a telescope, you say, okay, this the radius is that much. You see how it's moved around the sun, okay, you get the mass. And for the mass and the radius, you get the density and you say, well, it's, it's pretty low, so it's got to be mostly hydrogen. And then you could start to make model how it came to form. There are basically two school of thought that how you form this planet in the early solar system is one is you have these this gas nebula and in the early solar system you have like a, a small rocky planet protoplanet let's say and then this rocky planet starts to attract by gravity all the gas around it and then you have like a solid core and then of like dense material that uh, attracts all this hydrogen and helium and then makes this giant planet. And therefore, nowadays, if you if you believe that the theory, there should be a big core, there should be a lot of metal and rocks inside Jupiter, right? And other people say, no, there's, you don't need that. You can just have an instability in the fluid and out of the sudden, all the, the gas and the fluid hydrogen collapse and create this planet without the need for uh, rocks and metals, and one way to distinguish those those theories is to look at Jupiter today and say, is there a core or is it not a core? And the way we do that, you know, it's 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 complicated. And I say we, you know, I I'm 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 doing a very very little bit in, in this, but is by sending spacecraft, right? So we we just got very very exciting data from the Juno mission, right? So the Juno mission was a spacecraft orbiting around Jupiter and measuring the gravity field by basically stopping every instrument on board to to push and then just looking at how gravity was affecting his his moment, right? And then you, you get a gravity field. So then you get the mass distribution inside the planet. right? And then you also measure the magnetic field. So then you get basically the flows of conducting fluid inside the planet. And then our colleagues, you know, they take this data and say, okay, what's inside Jupiter now? And then 
To do that, to go from the magnetic field and the gravity field measurement to a model of the planet, you need to know how hydrogen compresses as a function of pressure and temperature. And you need to know uh, the electrical conductivity of hydrogen as a function of pressure and temperature, and the viscosity, and the thermal conductivity, and all these properties. And of course, you cannot measure everything, but we, could, we can do a few measurements. And in particular, we can measure pressure density, compressibility as a function of pressure and temperature at the condition inside those planets. And we can also measure the electrical conductivity by looking at optical properties. And in particular, the moment where hydrogen goes from molecular fluid to uh, metallic fluid. So with pressure and temperature, you take hydrogen, and if you basically you, you, you were to fly inside Jupiter, you go from the atmosphere, it's a molecular gas, right? It's, you can't see it. But if you go down and down, as the pressure increases, the atom gets closer and closer together, the molecule gets closer and closer together, to the point that you start to break the molecule and release free electrons. And so basically, you're breaking the bonds and making a metal at the same time in the fluid phase. And that's something we can do experiment on. We can show that it actually it exists. It's true, hard to make. And then our colleagues make models of how these changes with pressure and temperature. And then the other colleagues use that to model the planet. And then we can do like fantastic experiment. And that's what it, I, I find exciting is that we have these great facilities, like really big facilities. And of course, there's a lot of preparation in advance, right? But the day you do your experiment, then you have a team of people that are working here just to make your experiment happen. And if you thought it well, if you did your homework, then you, t you gave them all the instructions to make the experiment that you want to happen. So all the things will happen and you will compress the material the way you want it to compress. And then you will trigger all the different measurement instruments at the right time and looking at the right position with the right settings to make your measurements. Because of course, once the shock wave has passed your sample, everything decompresses, everything is vaporized, and you have to wait and that the laser cools down and then put another target if you're lucky and have the right to have another shot. How often do you get to do your experiment? So um, it depends a little bit on how high in pressure and how big a laser we need, right? Um, the National Ignition Facility in Livermore fires about 400 times a year. So each person doesn't do a lot of experiment on, on this laser every day. Typically, if a few per year on the National Ignition Facility. But at the Omega Laser, which is in Rochester, New York, it's a smaller scale laser. It, it, uh, it fires about 15 times uh, in a day, and they fire three days a week. And so there we go there pretty much every, once every two months or something like that. And then we do what we call a campaign. So we do either half a day or a day of experiment. And so we did between six and 15 experiments. There's a lot of preparation. So you really want to make the most of these facilities, right? So we usually have several people working on the same experiment so that we can you know, send ideas to each other and say, yeah, I don't agree. Yes, I agree. Do you, what do you think is happening? Well, I think this is happening. What does it feel like when experiment day is approaching? So actually, last week I was over there in, in, in Rochester, New York, and we did a, a set of experiments. And it's, 
after, you know, I've been doing those experiments for about eight years, so it, <laughs> it kind of routine now. You go there, you have this big laser, yeah, we have this, all this team and of people, and yes, there's a shot director counting, making the countdown and saying, you know, all the personnel have to evacuate, and, and we're about to charge the laser, and then making the countdown for the charging of the laser, and the countdown for the shot. And then you see the instrument saying like having the triggers and saying yeah acquisition ready and and then you shoot. But every time you shoot and we use the CCD cameras for our diagnostics, and so we are lucky enough that those acquire pretty fast and then we we get the data on on the computers in the control room pretty quickly like a few seconds after the shot. But those five seconds we have to wait between the moment that the shot director announced the shot and then the moment that the image refreshes, we're like, okay, what's happening, what's happening? And each time we're like, we're very nervous and then we see the result and our experiment, most, most of them, we can tell right away if it worked or, or not. We have like this um, optical diagnostic that really tell, you, tell us a lot, of, a lot of things about the experiment and so, you see the data, you're like, oh yeah, oh, oh no, it didn't work, I'm like, oh, okay. So we have to try another one. But sometimes it, we, when it works, it's really, it's, really, it's really exciting. But every time we shoot the laser, we are like very nervous and we're really hoping that we didn't, we didn't make the mistake. And sometimes we do make mistakes, right? Um, but, but yeah, that's, that's what's uh, exciting about those experiments. So <laughs> hearing this, uh, the, like, literally the only thing I can think of is, is Austin Powers. It's like Dr. Evil's like sharks with freaking laser beams attached to their heads. Right. That's right, all. Right. That's all no, I no, no. But, I, but these are not sharks with laser beams. No. Not here in this no, lab. Not sharks nor shooting at Austin Powers. No. That would be interesting we if hope that not. were their experiment. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that's not. So what are they sh actually? Yeah. So what are they <laughs> shooting the lasers at in their lab? So they're trying to shoot at their sample, which is very small. And and to contain it, they have this thing called a diamond anvil. Cool, right? You have to remember that pressure is force divided by area, right? So if you're able to have to apply a force on a large surface and transmit this force to a small area, then you multiply the pressure, right? And the best material that we have to do these kind of things is diamond because it's the hardest material we have on hand. And it's also great because it's transparent to the optical light, it's pretty transparent to x-rays, it's pretty transparent to neutrons. So you can take your sample and what you do is you, you take two gems of diamond and you flatten just the top of the, of the tip. You make two small surfaces, typically 100 micron or 500 micron in diameter. And where the big table is like one, two, three millimeters in diameter, right? So you take these two inverse pyramids, let's say, of uh, diamond with a flat, uh, flat at, the, at the top, you put them in a position and then you put your sample in between and then you, s you push on the big surface and now you multiply your pressure so then you can reach very high pressure with this cell and of course the two diamonds are playing the role of the anvil so it's a diamond anvil cell and you squeeze and you have your little sample that is being compressed to very high pressures. This will sound dumb, but why doesn't it squeeze out the sides? So actually, <laughs> so actually what we do is we put a gasket. So we put a metallic gasket. So what you do is you put a met metal foil in between your diamond in, in which you drill a, a little hole. 
that is smaller than the tide of the diamond. So then when you compress, you're actually pressing and ma making the metal flow, and that's your gasket. It's not like a plastic gasket. It's not a silicon gasket. It's metal gasket. And actually, in, in some experiment, we push so hard on the metal that the metal really flows, and that make your experiment fa fail. So people, that's one, one thing that people are uh, very good at, is designing ways to make these gas metallic gasket contain your material. Yeah. So you push on from the top and the bottom, and you have this metal resisting uh, in the equator, let's say. And so that's why you have this pressure volume. And so what's interesting is that, so the device was invented in Rochester, in New York, and 60 years ago, uh, a researcher named Dave Mao came to the geophysical lab here in Washington, D.C. at the Carnegie Institution for Science, and he was working in Rochester, and he came here for a postdoc, and he brought the diamond cell, which was a very young, very like new device, like crazy instrument, and he said, I'm gonna use, it, use this to study mineral physics. I'm gonna use a diamond cell to study what's happening inside the Earth, right? Let's say, Let's look at the pressure. We know, you know, if you go in the mantle, it's several gigapascal. If you go, again, to the core mantle boundary, it's 100 gigapascal. Let's, let's put minerals in the pressure cell and see what happens. And so what it's, it basically launched the whole field of mineral physics under high pressure, and it all started right, right here, like three miles away, uh, north from here. Is this a new idea that hydrogen can become not only a liquid, but electrically conductive under high enough pressure? So it's not it's not really a, a a new idea, right? It's it's been around for a while, and actually, I think people have theorized that and and proposed in use some measurement to do, to say that there is a magnetic field around Jupiter. I think the first measurement from from the Earth were 1955, right? And see if you have a strong magnetic field around Jupiter, the only way you can come to be, be generated is to magnetohydrodynamic, right? So basically dynamo, a dynamo effect, just like in the Earth, right? So it's a, a turbulent flow of a conducting fluid, right? And you have Jupiter, we know its density, it's mostly hydrogen, and there is a big magnetic field, so there's not too many options as to what's conducting, right? It has to be the hydrogen conducting in the fluid phase. And then in the 70s, they sent this first spacecraft that we actually probed the, the magnetic field in situ and say, yes, there's a magnetic field. And then more people um, did more uh, measurements, and now we have like very, very accurate measurements. So let's say we have the, the astronomy observation that there is something conducting in this planet and in Saturn as well. And in the lab, um, people have theorized in, in the 1930s that if you take hydrogen at very low temperature, just in the solid phase, you take hydrogen, it's a molecule, uh, molecular system. If you compress it to high density, uh, you reach a point where this density is high enough that you're going to break the bonds and delocalize the electron. Basically, you know, it's a quantum mechanic effect that the electrons are localized in the molecule, but that has a cost, and so if you bring these molecules too close to each other, at some point the system prefers to be in a state where those electrons are shared across the crystal in a delocalized state, and that's a metal. And so there was this prediction 
1930s, you take hydrogen, you squeeze it enough, it will become a metal, right? And then people have done a lot of experiments on this. And what's interesting is that uh, actually it's not just hydrogen. If you take oxygen, if you take sulfur, if you take pretty much a lot of things that are not metals at ambient condition, if you squeeze them enough, and the enough is an important thing, is that some things we have been able to show that it, that it does turn into a metal, some material still we, we are waiting for the confirmation. But a lot of things that are insulating, if you squeeze them enough, you can, you can turn them into metals. And so what's, what's new and what's difficult, in, let's say, in, in what, where we are making progress now is that we can study these, these phenomena at, with very, very high accuracy. We can, we can really test the, the theories and the numerical simulation with very, very high uh, precision. All right, so he's seen metallic liquid hydrogen in the lab, right? They've seen it. That's pretty cool. Right? Yeah. Yeah, they're not the first to see it, in fact, actually. Okay. It, was, it was seen at Sandia National Labs in Albuquerque um, using a different machine, um, and they repeated the experiment, and there were some discrepancies. Um, That's science. Science. You know, they're <laughs> trying to figure out, well, you know, experiments aren't wrong, so how does, how does it fit together? Yeah, yeah, they are pretty interesting discussions, let's put it that way. And... So about four years ago, our colleagues at the Sandia National Lab in uh, Albuquerque made an experiment. They use a different source to make the pressure. They use a magnetic uh, pulse power source, but it's, it's, it's very similar in, in nature. It's very fast compression in a few hundreds of nanoseconds in their case. And they compressed this hydrogen, and then they looked with optical diagnostic, and they saw that it was first as they, comp they were compressing it, it was turning into uh, an opaque material, so it basically becoming black. And then as it kept compressing, of course, all of that is very fast, and we make the story afterwards. They kept compressing, and then they found that it, it turned into a very highly reflecting system. So it, it looks really like a metal, really shiny. like a shiny metal, exactly. But what was very surprising that the pressure at which they found this transition uh, into the metal state was much higher than most theory predictions and also much higher than other experiments using diamond cells. And so we started to do an experimental campaign to look at, at this problem. And basically what we did is we, we did very similar experiment. We compressed hydrogen in the fluid phase with our large laser. And the diagnostic is very similar to what they, our colleague did. And the, the main difference is that our experiment is 10 times faster, 10 to 100 times faster. And what we found is that hydrogen does turn from transparent to opaque and opaque to reflecting, but we found a transition at much lower pressure. And so, of course, our colleague doing theory is they say, oh yeah, it's great, it agrees with our theory. You know, everything is pretty tricky, right? So, and, and I think ultimately all the experiments are, are correct, right? It's not that one experiment is incorrect and, and the other is correct is we need to understand all the observations with one correct model for what's happening, how, how to understand those experiments, right? Before we give the package and take, give it to our colleagues and say, this is what's happening in the hydrogen metallization. So before you can go and say, this is what's happening on Jupiter, you need to understand a little better what you are seeing in your laboratory experiments. Yeah. What do you think is the answer? 
Do you think Jupiter has this liquid metallic core or is it solid like we learned when we were in grade school? Yeah, so uh, it's it's not clear. So, the, so with the current knowledge, it seems that the Juno results tend to suggest that there is indeed heavy elements in the, si in the center of Jupiter, but what seems to be indicated is that it's not maybe just like core, uh, a very defined core surrounded by metallic hydrogen, but perhaps is more metals and rock at the center and slowly, gradually evolving to metallic hydrogen, metallic fluid hydrogen around it. Because colleagues have done predictions, I've, I've looked into the sim in, in simulations, our colleagues have looked at the chemistry between metallic hydrogen and rocks, right? So you take metallic hydrogen, you mix it with rocks, do you dissolve the rocks or do you have like a mixed system? Because that's very important if you have in your planets, you have millions of years, billions of years, and you need to know that because if, if they are happy to mix, if they are resolving, interacting with each other, then there's no way you're gonna have a very well-defined um, core. And so our colleagues doing simulation say, well, it, it may be happening that the core is eroded, is being eroded over time by the metallic hydrogen, by the convection in the in metallic hydrogen. And it seems that the, the data from Juno seems to be in agreement with that um, hypothesis that metallic hydrogen would react with whatever is in the core and make it like a very gradual, like a mushy um, blob at the center, not like a very well-defined core surrounded by an atmosphere. Basically, there is no surface around the core of Jupiter. That's, that's a proposed understanding. But of course, I'm an experimentalist, so what I really want to do is do the experiment, take metallic hydrogen and rocks and metals, and see if we can m show that it, it, it does happen. But it's, that's a little bit more complicated, so we'll have to wait for that one. So my profound um, <laughs> thought about this. Hey, I'm, I'm in full support of it. Is so like we know a lot of stuff about things, mm -hmm. but like we don't know a lot of stuff about things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm with you. And, and sometimes to learn stuff, you get to use freaking lasers. Uh, yeah. Like how cool is that? It really is. Very, right. pretty very cool. Yeah. I'm on board with this. Pew, pew. Yeah. <laughs> pew. <laughs> all right okay folks well that's all from third pod from the sun thanks so much to liza for bringing us this story and to marius for sharing his work with us uh this podcast was produced by liza lester and mixed by kayla suri we would love to hear your thoughts please rate and review us um and you can always find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts or at thirdpodfromthesun.com thanks all and we'll see you next time